We're so excited to welcome you to this episode of The Work. We have one of our industry's absolute experts. I say that unequivocally. Uh, Jerry Crispin is joining us today. And of course, he has co-authored eight books on the evolution of staffing and has written hundreds of articles and white papers on similar topics throughout his career in human resources, um, which spans 40 years. Uh, Jerry, I'm going to ask you to touch on that. Of course, you have been at Johnson & Johnson, at executive search firms. Um, You were career services director at the university where you received your engineering degree and, and GM of a major recruitment advertising firm. Of course, your latest gig, a mere 25 years plus, has been as head of Career Crossroads. So, uh, Jerry and John, uh, welcome to this episode of The Work. Uh, John and I are going to be asking Jerry some tough questions, but I know he can handle it. Jerry, please say hello to our audience. It's really a pleasure to be here. I think it's fabulous. The only, the only thing is, I I would prefer not being an expert in anything. I am. I'm merely a student who learns from all those people around me, including Eugene and John. Definitely has been uh, in at various times uh, a helpful mentor on a number of different kinds of subjects. So it's that that kind of thing. And I'm. I'm also not the head of anything. I I try to arrange it so that somebody else runs all of the stuff that I do. And and so that way I'm uh, relaxed and enjoying life. This sounds like a great formula. What do you think, John? Well, I I love it. I love it's also, you know, the definition of an expert is somebody who's got more questions than answers. And um so I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and say Jerry is the consummate expert because he's always got more questions than answers. Yeah, I, I love and I love that you're a That's lifetime what a good learner. Student should have world class <laughs> students should be able to be curious and and ask all kinds of freaking questions, right? And John, you, be, you become pretty good at that for sure. You must you must you must uh, you must go live in a different country. That's not what we produce as students <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> well, you know, why don't we start there? <laughs> because yeah. I think we have some some serious uh, labor issues to contend with uh, from a talent acquisition standpoint, from a talent retention standpoint. Um, Jerry, what's good? What's bad? What's broken? What, you know, how do we fix things? <laughs> we have, uh, let's see, about 28 think, minutes left. Take us I think, through. <laughs> I think the one thing I could say is that in, in the course of actually 50 years, it, it's on, on a resume, you should never say more than 40. Actually, you probably should probably not say no, no more than 10. But, but you know, in, in my time, people have basically just cu- keep coming full circle. I mean, you know, people thought that, Boomers were going to be lazy and useless, and uh, as they came into the workforce, because they were all freaking hippies and strange and all that kind of stuff. So, and, and John remembers that because he was. But the but the reality is, um, we we keep being concerned about an awful lot of things. We should be a lot more patient on. Uh, I think things change slowly. Um, I think it's more complex now. We have more tools. We have more technologies. People are into so many different things. We're very fragmented. And I do think we need to 
um, sit back a little bit, uh, get a little clearer. And uh, one trend that I do see that I enjoy, I think should be supported is an increasing uh, emphasis on uh, coaching and mentoring, both internal to employers as well as, you know, for early career. Uh, because I do think we're coming into a very complex world that uh, we need a little bit more guidance in terms of what the options are, what the possibilities are, um, so that young people, as well as older people, uh, can uh, can get a little more confident about the path that they want to take. That's leading me to my first question, and that is, did technology make all of this worse? What What led to all no. these complications? I, th- I think letting technology drive uh, is is what makes it worse. I think I think if we stay focused on what it is we want to accomplish, we can strip out the technology that makes no sense to a, to anything, um, and get back to how it enables us to be more productive or efficient, uh, and and in helping us do what we wanted to do in the first place. I did. I wonder. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, I wonder about the technology question, because it seems to me that we are very busy looking for people who precisely match job requirements, which is all the technology is capable of doing. And that's a large part of the problem. Yeah. Right. The, you know, I, I have a friend who says uh, a resume is a list of the things that you never want to do again. Um, and I think there's a lot to that. Right. And so and so. So if the only job I can get is the job that I've already had, which is what the technology forces, then you end up with the technology being the cause for people leaving. You end up with the technology pigeonholing people in ways that that over the course of this generation that you and I have watched evolve, we've gone from people choosing people because they understood how to develop people and they understood how to, how to maximize the benefit of there being a gap between the resume and the job uh, to a world where if somebody doesn't exactly meet the requirements of the job, they don't get a shot. Um, yeah, I, and, I hear you. But I, okay. let me push back a little bit. The, the fact is that's technology that's driving the result rather than us sitting back and saying, what is it we want from technology? So, for example, if if on average we still have more women than men taking time off from work in order to participate in raising kids, we've known for many, many years, decades, that when those women uh, decide that they want to come back into the workforce, Um, they've always struggled with trying to figure out how all those really cool things they did while they weren't in the, quote, traditional workforce actually helped them become better at business, uh, better at uh, doing things, you know, handling or juggling 10 million different things that they had to do and all of those kinds of things. But they weren't asked the right questions because, again, the technology was limited to asking specifically, do you have this degree or have you had this particular job or this particular title, as opposed to what did you do when you had to do these things when you were not in the workforce that actually match up 
to to successful people who are doing these things from a skills point of view or from an experience point of view. So I, I think we want to ask the technology to pivot, you know, to to infer um, skills that we can match that have nothing to do with the job you're currently doing or the job you might be able to do later on that is an expansion of where you've been so that we can see a path or have options around that path. Yeah, I'm, that, I'm not... I'm uh, Jerry, I'm not sure those women ever, ever make their way through the system to even be asked the question, how, well, you know, how did you develop not, these? Yeah, we've got we got opportunity in front of us. We don't have to limit technology to being mm-hmm. able to match exactly. We, we should be using technology to make those kinds of inferences. And I do think that technology could be developed to do that if, mm-hmm. if somebody figured it out, you know? And I, I see pieces of it. So I do see pieces of it. I, I just saw a demo recently and that focused in on uh, asking at the early career stage a lot of really interesting questions of folks who did, has ne- have never really had jobs, maybe mm-hmm. had a little bit of an internship, and then, and then figuring out without ever asking them about degree, for example, mm-hmm. uh, getting to a point where, where they are, they're matching more effectively, I think, without uh, the, quote, degree or major, uh, the ability of that individual to conceivably succeed in an early career job uh, in a given company. So I'm, I'm seeing some efforts uh, to, to do a better job. Uh, to meet the needs that employers are now saying that they want to be able to hire people from a broader pool of folks who don't have a specific degree or even a degree from a specific college Mm -hmm. um, so that they're a little bit more capable of of drawing on a successful pool, expanding of successful candidates. So So, so you're saying the candidates are there. You're saying the candidates are there. We're just not doing a good job. Find oh, it. We're yeah. not do, doing we a good job connecting with them. We're, and, and we're not doing as good a job as we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would have a broad, a more expansive group of folks. And I will tell you that John's been arguing this point for as long <laughs> as I've known him, by the way. So so it's not it's not like it's not like we don't know this. The issue is when will somebody decide that they can do this well, and somebody would then write a check and make decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. If somebody invented this 20 years ago, they would have gone bankrupt very quickly because everybody would pre- prefer to say, okay, well, if you don't have this degree, you can't get this job. And and now there's there's more people who are willing to spend a little money to try to you know do it a little differently. And tomorrow, hopefully, many more. So, so I think it's, it's worth digging a little bit here. The demographics are, are, there's not a shortage of people with credentials for jobs, right? There, there's a surplus of people with college degrees, and there's a shortage of people at the level of job that immigrants used to fill before we stopped letting immigrants into the, co- into the country. And so, so, so this, this idea that you can, you can find alternatives to credentialed people is is interesting but 
they're starting to pay fifty and sixty thousand dollars to hand out hamburgers at drive-throughs. You know, it's twenty-five bucks an hour in my town, and they can't get people to take the job. Um, right. um, and the problem is there. Um, and um, and what it takes to solve that problem is starting to look at people who we didn't think were employable at all. Um, the, 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 the folks who are in the um, non-participating part of the adult workforce um, who are not neurotypical or they're disabled in some other way or they're uh, separated, or, from the, separated from the work by social class. Mm-hmm. Um, or previously incarcerated. I mean, you you've previously got- incarcerated, mm-hmm. um, and I don't see anybody really trying to make sense out of that fundamental problem. And, and it seems to me that the that the economy is built on those poor, low paid jobs that there isn't anybody to take, and the people who are available, the excess college degreed mm-hmm. people aren't interested in taking those jobs. Right. So, right. so yeah, we just, I just, what I was referring to obviously was a little bit more of those types of jobs that traditionally did attract college students, if you will, or, and, and that was a, a narrow piece, but you're, you're absolutely right. If we look at the totality of the, the workforce, there's a huge number of people who still don't have don't have credentials and or have restrictions in terms of what they are capable of doing. Um, and so while, while I think that problem is, is again, going to take a long time to solve, the fact of the matter is we see an increasing number of different, different classes of worker. The whole contingent issue is different classes of worker who, who can potentially um, enjoy some kind of work, but may have restrictions that prevent them from doing it 40 hours a week or in, in a given place, or they need a better, more accommodations or any number of things. And there is there are plenty of examples of efforts to do that. It's just that when you add up all the numbers of people hired that way, it's still a relatively small number compared to the pool that might be there. So we keep on piloting stuff without really finding from a societal point of view, from a governmental point of view, a willingness uh, to provide incentives in our society. Just like we're, we're, we're failing, we've been failing for 30 years uh, to write a decent immigration policy that would allow um, workers to come to the United States to work in the United States. Um, we, we, we fail miserably at that. So that way we just in, encourage people to come here illegally because there's so many people who are willing to hire them <laughs> because the people yeah. here don't want the job. Well, the demand is there. Yeah, absolutely. It's there. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, um, what are your thoughts on the I'll call them hurdles, although that's not technically correct. Um, the filtering tactics that are in place in the hiring workflow, uh, and some of those would be like assessments. And sure. you know, we we saw the news today that ISIMS just acquired Skill Survey. I mean, well, what are your thoughts on that? Is that making it 
better? Is it making it harder? Who is that actually serving? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I'm a little radical on this issue. I think that, that um, the United States is further behind using assessments than almost any other uh, developed country, in part because we're so risk averse that uh, we tend to do most of our hiring um, by gut feel of a hiring manager uh, and no notes um, listed anywhere. Um, I, I would challenge most companies to be able to, uh, to demonstrate the evidence-based approach that they're using uh, in a consistent fashion. So uh, every selection decision is in fact based on an assessment. It's just most of those are based on intuition rather than, rather than any kind of uh, factual um, or developed assessment tool, if you will. And obviously, there's plenty of problems with the assessment tools themselves. But if we were transparent about the strengths and weaknesses of that assessment tool, and if we were willing uh, to take data, not only of those people we hire with the assessment, but those people who we hire where we didn't have access to that assessment, and later on be able to look at the degree to which those individuals performed, and, and we had sufficient um, population, if you will, of the people that we hire and don't hire uh, that had variations. So, you know, variations in age, gender, race, ethnicity, we could, we could actually do something that we've known how to do for over 100 years, which is do a predictive validation. However, we don't do that. We have almost no companies in the United States that do any predictive validation because it takes four or five years to accomplish that. The companies that do that uh, can demonstrate not only that they are hiring folks who are diverse, but they're hiring folks that we, they, can, they can, in a valid way, predict their success or failure. So there's, so there's that piece of it, um, but I would, I would, because I'm a little bit more radical, I believe that it takes two decisions in order for a successful um, hire. And the one decision is the employer and the employer decides whether they can do it. And obviously we have a lot of problems figuring that out, but, but that's what we're doing. But we do not supply the information to the candidate similar to what we give to the employer that would allow the candidate to decide, will he or she do it? And, and, the, and the one example I would give, and I'll shut up, is um, I am required as a candidate to tell you every relationship I've ever had with, a, with an employer and what happened to it and why and demonstrate to you that I performed while I had the relationship and that I just didn't leave the relationship because I was pissed off. On the other hand, no hiring manager is required to tell me, the candidate, how many people like me have you hired in the last five or six years and where are they now? Which I would like to know because that gives me some indication of how good you are 
at developing me, if that's something I want, or leaving me alone <laughs> to, to do things and perform on my own, if that's what I want. Um, and we don't seem to be willing to share that kind of data. Um, so that's, that's just one area that uh, I think we restrict access to information that could be used to improve decision-making. And it's going to be an area that, that I think increasingly, from a transparency point of view, candidates will be demanding. Awesome. I think they will, too. I think they will, too. Um, I, I think that, that uh, what you've just shared is extremely powerful. And uh, and we do through put the candidate through their paces and there is no reciprocity other than pretty employer branding, you know, <laughs> all of the great stock photography. You're going to come here and have a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, where the, the where the rubber meets the road is that hiring manager and employees are going to be demanding more and more career opportunity. What are you going to do for me? I mean, there's been recent research published by McKinsey, I believe, that that states that that's, you know, top of the list. I mean, obviously, pay is is a big part of the relationship, but so is opportunity. Um, I think that's a series of them. You get rid of the pay issue or the pay inequity by putting that out front Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, here's here's what it is. And here's what we're doing to make sure that, you know, we, we, we maintain to some degree the equity that we can between um, gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, but I, have to, I have to believe that we are just missing extraordinary opportunities uh, to, to be more transparent in how we engage um, those folks. And I think candidates are going to find data anyway, right? Um, in, in a variety of different ways, and it may be appropriate uh, for yeah. their decision, but it's certainly not coming from the employer. So it's exactly. Independent. Well, and, it, you know, it's the Yelp syndrome. I mean, people people jump online when they want to kind of, you know, vent their spleen about something that they weren't happy about in their life. And that's exactly the kind of information that you can find about an employer, um, but not, you know, that that isn't scientific. Gene, I'm, uh, you know, in, in a sense, I'm privileged. I got, uh, you know, I had lots of people, family, friends, uh, and, and peers who told me always about how I could improve my ability to get ahead, to get the next job, to ask this question, to, you know, how do I handle myself within the job with mm-hmm. people who are different than me, older than me, whatever. You were so being coached. You were being coached, being coached and mentored. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You don't have that. I, I was no. at a I, I gave a, a, a t- about a talk. I did a um, uh, facilitated a panel a couple of years ago at ERE that was just students who had graduated one year and were working for a company. And I had asked the companies that I knew to give me the best students, the highest performing, highest potential person that they had for that panel. And at first they said, no, are you kidding me? You're going to go put this kid on a panel in front of 600 recruiters. Why would I possibly do that? You'd steal the shit out of this. So, so I said, no, no, no. Come on. Think about this. It's, it's a way to you know, show that your brand is working. And obviously, if somebody can steal this kid away, 
you know, you got other problems. And so, uh, so they did. So I had five kids and, and there were several questions I asked, but two were critical. And the, the first question I asked was, why do you think that the decision you made to come to this company was a good one? And each one of them in their own way basically said, you've given me a mentor. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, there is somebody that I can rely on because I didn't have a lot of experience inside companies before that, that actually helped me better understand how I can operate. I mean, I know, I know engineering, but I don't know how to speak to the people that I have to share my information with. Uh, and, and that has helped me you know, uh, project, if you will, what I can do and do what I do. Uh, so much better. And I feel good about that. And that makes me feel like I made the right decision. And so, so I go, well, that's so cool. And then I said, okay, so the last question I asked was, what are you going to need in the next, in two years after you've been here three years that will convince you that you might want to stay? And every one of them said, I want a coach. Oh, <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you, what's the difference between a coach and a mentor? I said, the mentor helps me be successful where I am. The coach helps me think about what I want to do long-term. Yeah. Setting reach goals. Yeah. And, and I, I said, geez, that I, I did not in my generation, we were not as there's only a few people that sophisticated uh, to, to be able to think that. And today there is much, there's many more who get this. But there's also a huge uh, group of people that that really aren't uh, aware of their of a of a I think a strong need for a mentor to be helpful in terms of their you know and be be conscious about that of finding someone who can help you uh, deal with the the what's challenging you today as well as somebody who you can talk to and and kind of reflect on work as whether, whether or not that work fits this job that you've, you're, you sort of have and whether your job fits in the framework of your vision of a career and whether your career, in fact, uh, is relevant to the stage in life that you have. And I think, you know, this pandemic has forced a lot of pe people to start thinking these thoughts. They may not have, be able to articulate them very well, but it's, cl it's clear to me that there is an incredible need uh, for people to be able to align, if you will, their job, their career, and their stage in life as they keep going. Because I think that's part of the satisfaction after you've been in your career for 50 years of, of being able to relax and be comfortable in your skin. You know, regretfully, on that note, we need to wrap it up. And Jerry, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know how to get in touch with you. What, uh, you're you're kind of ubiquitous, but uh, where can people find you? I'm easy to find. Jerry is spelled with a G. So if they can say Jerry Crispin <laughs> to Google, um, Google will come up with a whole host of ways of getting in touch with me. Uh, but obviously, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, if somebody says that they are um, involved in recruiting in some way, shape or form and want to connect to me, I'm happy to be connected. They can almost guarantee that. 
if their job is sales or insurance, probably not, unless they, they have a good <laughs> so Okay, John, I, we, we got to stop have, sending I Jerry those emails. So, so many people every day asking me if they want, if, if I want to get more leads and uh, increase my business by 50%. And I'm going, I don't care about that anymore. <laughs> Just leave me the hell alone. <laughs> I know. Delete, delete, delete. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Work, a podcast co-hosted John Sumser and Gina Killey. And thank you to our guest, Jerry Crispin, today of Career Crossroads.